good to be with you guys this morning. I, I sent out a note just talking about, well, this little ritual of mine each day of playing these New York Times puzzles and loving this one called Connections. Does anybody else play Connections here? Okay. Connections is cool. It's like 16 words and you have to figure out how to group them all together. And, you know, today's is like, there's, you're trying to find groups of four, but today you're like, oh wow, there's one that's like six. So you have to like figure out which ones don't belong in this. And anyway, finding the connections. I was kind of joking that it's how my mind works anyways. And I'm one of these people that reads lots of books at once. Anybody else? All right, so I, I've got like four going right now. I'm reading with a book group. I'm reading back through Screwtape Letters, which is so good. I love that book. Um, I'm reading a book that's on the theology of Dallas Willard. Probably most of you are like, eh, boring. But, but I'm loving it. Um, I'm reading a book by Carlo Rovelli on white holes, like black holes that hit the singularity, which is just weird. And um, then somebody gave me this book on near-death experiences. And as I'm reading the text for today, I was like, these all fit. (laughs) So I don't know if they really do, but I'm going to try as best I can to kind of draw a thread through it and see if if it all makes sense. But um, anyway, I, I came across this quote in the book on Willard where he says this, um, all through the scriptures, we see a progressive apprehension of God. That for Willard, this is kind of how he, he took this as sort of a baseline fundamental that the scriptures are about God revealing himself. And I think that sometimes when we think of Old Testament versus New Testament, it's like there's a personality change in there. That the God of the Old Testament all of a sudden sort of diminishes and is replaced by a new and improved 2.0 God. And what Willard is saying is, no, that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament is presenting himself to a people that are growing in their ability to understand the complexities of who God is. This word apprehend, it's an interesting word, right? Because when we think of apprehension, generally, I think we mean like a discomfort. And I think that that is part of what goes into this, that that apprehending God is different than, let's just say, comprehending God, like we've got him all figured out, that we understand all the facets of who God is, like, yes, I comprehend this God. In fact, Scripture is going to say, Paul's even going to say, like, it's knowledge that surpasses knowledge, the depths go beyond our abilities to comprehend, and yet we can apprehend, and we can grow further and further into that apprehension Who is this God? And how does our understanding of God affect the way that we live our lives now? This is why we gather in church to to have a sermon is to help us experience God, but also grow in our apprehension of who God is. And the truth is, this incomprehensibility of God is is just a reminder that God is God and we are not, right? That... um, that we are exploring something that is so beyond any of us. And yet a God that desires to be apprehended is humbly showing us at our level of understanding. I mean, here we are, like little first graders in the classroom, being shown something so much bigger than us. And a God who stoops down to show us. A God who humbles himself that we might know more and more who he is. 
And I think we live in a world where we tend to have too high of a view of what we know. We, we pretend to think, have things figured out that we don't. And as I study this book on black holes, I'm like, oh my gosh, like all that we don't understand, just simply staring out at the universe. That what we have is, is these stars of incredible mass that we cannot fathom, that are, are so large that they're warping space-time, right? Which that alone doesn't make sense. We, we see time is so linear, right? Just second after second, like there's a stopwatch at the center of the universe or something like that, some sort of universal time, and it doesn't work that way, that this mass bends and slows time to the point like where it's radically moving, moving at radically different speeds, but that these stars will eventually die, and when they do, they create this mass so deep that it pulls space-time down into like a funnel. This is what you're looking at when you see this black hole in the sky, right? And we tend to think of a black hole as a circle in the sky because what happens is the gravity is pulling so hard that light at a certain point can't escape. And so we see this circle of light that we would refer to as an event horizon. This is the horizon of the black hole. But the truth is, you could go through that black hole, and who knows where in the world you would end up somewhere. But it's pulling down into this point that will eventually reach what they call a singularity, where time stands still, at least theoretically. How much of that made sense? <laughs> right? I mean, you look at that, and you're like, what? What? That, that these things are happening. I mean, try to wrap your mind around this. It's happening in like billionth of a second this is happening. And yet because of the distortion of gravity, time is slowing down so slow that millions of years can be passing in seconds for this. That's how radically distorted time is at the center of this. And so when we think of what is beyond this universe, who created all this, the complexities of God, he would look at these black holes and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's like second grade, right? <laughs> it's simple and yet to us incomprehensible. And when you think about apprehension, it's fun to th see this like historically play out through science where, you know, a few thousand years ago, we thought this is the bottom right? That, that what we're standing on here is the ground. This is it. And, but when we see stars going through the sky, we realize, oh no, they're like going around us. Like, like we're floating. Like there's an underneath to us. And that the earth, as it turns out, isn't flat. It's this sphere. It's like circular. You could actually go all the way around it and travel. And that what feels so stable here is not we're moving at incredible speed. And that we're not the center of everything, but as it turns out, just a little planet circulating a sun that's also flying around through a whole cosmos, right? And we're trying to grapple with these things, these little human beings thinking that we can trust the appearances when really reality is so much larger, constantly expanding. And see, we see our lives through this small little capacity with our own sort of event horizon out there. Hopefully this is where the thread will connect. 
our life, this short, tiny little life that we're trying to make sense out of, with this moment of ending that's, that we know is out there and yet often live our lives pretending it doesn't exist. That there's a finality to life in death. And most of us, when we think about it, find it so discomforting that we go running the other way. We live our lives as if it doesn't exist, that our values are shaped by it, the fears and anxieties surround it all. And one of the things that Scripture is doing is helping us understand not just the incomprehensibility of God, but this extension of our lives and our own souls in a reality that goes far beyond what we can imagine. That these simple little lives of ours, these short 70 years, 80 years, 90 years that we live here on earth, which are over so quick, which wither like grass, is just the beginning of the story. This is what scripture invites us to consider and to shape our lives around that reality. And we watch in Psalm 8, David's like staring out at the night sky saying, when I observe that your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. He stares at these realities and this is like before telescopes and he's going, who am I? And yet David's going to go on there and say, but you've made me a little lower than an angel. This sort of duality within us, this wrestling of our humility, our, our smallness, combined with somehow our greatness. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, enjoy life with your, the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days, for that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. Solomon wasn't having a good day when he wrote this. (laughs) And I love that it's in there, right? That you have Solomon who is this example of this like insatiable appetite. Somebody who had everything that the world could offer and consumed and consumed and consumed to the point where things had lost their meaning. And he stared at this shortness of life and thought, what's the point? Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you may die. And how we look at this horizon, you see how it affects our lives. If life is short and we only have these 70 years, then you might as well consume, except when people do, it doesn't seem to give what it promises. We see this again and again, that in this life, those with all the power don't ever reach this point of contentment, right? It's just this growing vacuum of need. What if life is to be lived differently What if we're to understand our life not by this limited edge, this false horizon, but to see, in fact, that our life extends beyond and that this life is an opportunity to invest not only in this life, but in the next. 
When I think of death, I, I think of oftentimes this deep sort of offense within me. Something about it feels wrong. I, I've told you this before, and, and it's embarrassing to me, but it's my reoccurring dream that I'm dying. Have I told you this? That it happens as I'm waking up. And I've probably, it's probably happened like 50 times, maybe more than that. I have this sense of waking up and thinking, oh no, this is it, right? That I'm coming to the edge of something that I cannot see past. And that all these things, all the ways I've been living, I all of a sudden realize I'm about to find out that all of us are wondering what is on the other side of that. And something in me that just thinks the idea of not existing is the most terrifying thing, which I realize is illogical. Like when you don't exist, you're not going to be over there worrying about the fact that you don't exist. But still it like triggers this thing in me. I hate the idea of it. And think about so much tragedy of people's lives that are cut short. Such a sadness to that. I was thinking this on November 1st is All Saints Day, and I was thinking about two people that have really spoke so much into my own life of who I am. One of them was Chris Davis, who died really young from MS, and another was um, Mark Metherall, who used to be part of our church, who died too young. And the tragedy of these lives that are cut short what could have been? Death is this horrible thing out there. At least it feels that way to us. And we can live our life in that sort of fear. We can live our life sort of overwhelmed by that reality. Even as followers of God. Even as those who have been challenged to think beyond that. And in our passage today in 1 Thessalonians... Paul's going to speak right to this thing. He's going to describe death in a similar way as a sort of falling asleep, but with this reality that we will reawaken. So let me read these verses. I think they're great verses, and these are verses that are meant by Paul to encourage us, but also spur us on. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. And by that, he means dad so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring uh, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by the word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What is he saying? Uh, Death is not this end. Death is this new beginning. Death is this moment of transition. It's a doorway that we pass through. That because of Jesus, we we get walked through this gate with him, carried through by what he's done. For Paul, this is what the resurrection means. That with it is the overthrowing of death, the removal of its sting. 
I love this promise, right? You think, what if that's true? Wouldn't that shape our whole lives and how we live? Wouldn't that put trials and worries and pressure and fear in its proper perspective? Paul believed this so much that he saw his sufferings as what he referred to as light and momentary. He had this understanding, not just that death is not an end, but that our life extends far beyond these short years here on earth. Now, how many of you wish that we could just peek onto the other side and see? Wouldn't it be nice? And see, here's where I want to make another connection with this other book that I'm reading on near-death experiences. Has any of you read anything on this? These are weird and super cool. (laughs) Story after story. I mean, there are like literally millions of these stories, but like thousands that have been documented. And not like just documented like right here in the United States or something like that, but globally from every culture, people of every religion. And in recent years, people that are plugged into like every sort of medical device that you can think of and being measured, right? And what happens, I mean, it's wild, but it, when these people flatline, when there's like literally nothing registered, people have come back and experienced all kinds of things. But, but the first is an awareness of what's going on in that moment. And I've been reading through these, and so many of them start with like a pop, that this person is like there, you know, in their body, but all of a sudden they're above looking down, which is really weird, staring down and listening. They'll come back and they'll recall things that were said, jokes that were told, but But more than that, they'll even, like, one of them that I was reading, they popped up and they were, like, looking down on themselves, but there was a ceiling fan there, and they could see, like, red tape on top of one of the blades. And so they they were like, no, 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 there's, like, a piece of red tape on the top of that. And they're like, are you sure? And they, like, went up on a ladder and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's red tape. So, like, weird things like this. And they're not all the same. They're different, which in, in some ways is reassuring that, this isn't some weird sort of collusion. People are doing their best to interpret what they see, but oftentimes words don't work. They're seeing something and they don't have the language to describe it. But they try. People that are blind are able to physically see. People that have been like missing limbs or have some sort of deformity find themselves there and made whole. There's all kinds of theories, non-spiritual, of what's going on here, where there may be some like little residue, something in a brain stem that's functioning there. One thing that's interesting is there's like probably 30 different theories on what happens, right? Because these are so documented, like what's really going on? And what's interesting is there's 30, which means like all you need is one good one, right? Or two good ones. 30 theories means there's no good ones. Nobody knows what in the world is going on in this. But in like 99% of these cases, there's an encounter with God. 
And this God is what they would describe as two words, light and love. And they're, they're struck by the inadequacy of these words. And yet this is the reality. And it comes with this profound reassurance and invitation that comes with it. This God comes in such power, but they would also say with humility. And it's interesting, as Paul writes in Scripture, he describes a moment like this for himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, it says, um, I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man. So he, he like uses this language almost to refer to like this is happening to a different person, but then kind of plays his cards later that it's him. He says, I know a man in Christ who's caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. And we don't know what this moment is with Paul, but some have theorized that possibly it was when he was in Lystra that we're told that, you know, he had come into this culture and they thought, oh, maybe you're like Zeus and Barnabas is Hermes and, you know, but then all of a sudden they, they turned, the crowd turns on Paul and on Barnabas. Paul is stoned to the point of death and they even drag his body outside of the city and leave it for dead. And some have said that would probably fit about the 14-year timeline for Paul, that, that maybe something happened here. But it's interesting. He, he's trying to describe something that he, he doesn't have the language to, to say. In fact, he even says, humans aren't supposed to talk about this stuff. That what's coming, I think, this reality, I think connects these two passages. He's going, there's this thing that I can't quite explain. And yet at the same time, as he speaks to the Thessalonians, he goes, don't be afraid that death is not the end, that we will awaken again to a new reality. No wonder, as we study theology, that we come like to the limits of our ability to comprehend. We're, we're trying to picture something too great for our minds. I've talked about this story called Flatland, and um, some of you may have read this, but uh, th this mathematician writes this story Flatland is about uh, a three-dimensional object trying to have a conversation with a two-dimensional object. And the, the three-dimensional sphere is like down talking to this square, and he comes like right down next to him. But because he doesn't like come into the two dimensions, he doesn't exist, right? The square is like, I don't see you. And he's trying to explain what up is. And the, the square can only comprehend like north, like that way. And he's like, no, 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 it's, it's this way, but a dimension that he can't get. <laughs> There's this great line in there where the square says, either this is madness or it's hell. And the sphere says, it's neither. Calmly replied the voice of the sphere. It's knowledge. It's three dimensions. Open your eye once again and try to look steadily. I think so much of Scripture is this sort of invitation to comprehend knowledge that surpasses knowledge. 
that we in our little two-dimensional plane are trying to picture something that's just too much. But it's true. And that from our vantage point, we can get stuck in two-dimensional problems and overwhelmed by two-dimensional problems. And we're being invited to think, theologically speaking, in three. People that have had these near-death experiences, another thing that comes along with it is uh, they have their life played in front of them all the way through. So many saying, gosh, moments that I had completely forgotten about were there in front of me. Examining their life, seeing all these different moments. But what's interesting, and this is again and again and again, they see their life based on the effect of their life on others. Not how they experienced it, but how other people experienced them. So part of the reality is when they wake up from this is this reassurance that like what lies on the other side of death is going to be fine, but that the opportunity here and now to live in such a way, pouring yourself out, this is what we're here to do. That our life comes down to these two simple things that Jesus goes, here it is, love God with everything you've got. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is what sort of the eternal metric cares about. And and almost nothing else. Loving God with everything and loving others. That becomes the measure of every single one of our lives. You can live your life based on accumulating as much as you can for these 70, 80 years on earth without any guarantee that you're going to make it even that far, and you can consume and consume and consume and gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. The other thing that's in so many of these near-death experiences is the reality of hell and darkness and consequence, which I never like that one. I like to think that it's just all light and no darkness, that like, yay, everything works out. But there's this sobering reality that not only is the light more beautiful, but the darkness is worse. And as we look at a world where we see so much violence, so much darkness, so much just chaos and evil happening in our world, the gravity of that in eternity. How it sends us back with a sort of sobriety to how we live. And obviously, I think we read in our book group a book on how most of our conceptions of hell are more like the result of Dante than the Bible, that we have these kind of small images of hell and can therefore tend to, if we think of knowledge that surpasses that, like poke fun at that. But the truth is so much of Scripture is pointing to the gravity associated with how we live our lives, that it really matters, that actions have consequence, the way we treat others or refuse to treat others, the way that we live generously or the way that we withhold. These things have an effect. It should sober us. But this immortality also speaks to something like deep within us that longs for glory. 
that longs for more and the reassurance that we're made for such a thing. You've heard me quote this before. It's a, a oft-quoted passage from Lewis. But he says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. When we talk about transformation, we talk about how we live and how that affects the heart. It's this reality that our life extends, the trajectory keeps going. And how we have this invitation to live our life in Christ, with Jesus. He's the one who goes before us. He's the one, as Paul says, that takes us across that threshold. And Jesus is this three-dimensional sphere that becomes two-dimensional, right? He enters into our story in such a way that we're like, okay, I can understand you, right? This is like God's intersection with our like, limited dimensions, God empties himself, humbles himself, comes in. That this God of outside, this humble God of power comes in to our world. Reveals who we are in light of who he is. Provides the answer for all the consequence of that darkness. Absorbs all of the weight of that. And then invites us simply to come with us, with him. I love how that, the thieves on the cross, right? You have these kind of clear picture of this choice and one just sits there and it's cynicism and berates. That, that, that thing, God doesn't overpower the one that says, I want nothing to do with you. Lewis would say, either we say to God, thy will be done, or he says to us, thy will be done. That that life that is bent on seeking its own power and control self-sufficiency, self-adoration, that at some point God in his grace says, so be it. I love that the other thief says, hey, would you remember me? And Jesus says, yes. That the acceptance of this is something really so simple. It's this surrendering of our heart, laying down that thing that wants our way responding openly, humbly, and compassionately. And can you imagine looking at your whole life and seeing all the things that you've done wrong? I like am not looking forward to that day. Like, oh, there I was again. Oh, there I was again. This thing in us that knows, like, I could have done more, right? How many of you are sitting there going, no, I've done this all pretty well. I think I got an A. <laughs> 
We know we haven't. We could all have done more. I love the psalmist. He says, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins. Blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of my salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Jesus is God's answer to that prayer. An answer of yes. A God who has done it. Jesus becomes our, our clearest understanding of what lies beyond. And I love, there's a moment there where he's, he like lets down his, his, his guard. He's standing there in this place of what we would call transfiguration, where all of a sudden Jesus like stops withholding the divinity in him and it just shines bright. I think so many people, when they have these experiences of this God who's beyond, that's what they're seeing is the power of this light emanating from God. And Jesus becomes not only the way, but he becomes the reassurance. This is what we celebrate on Easter, that resurrection is this deep promise that all things will be made new. Paul's going to say, if that didn't happen, that we're to be pitied above all. We who like live our lives pouring it out for others. Gosh, maybe we should just stop and try to consume all we can, except that doesn't work anyway. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, <clears throat> and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this verse, and it reminds me so much of what he's teaching in Thessalonians. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And for Paul, this reality, this reassurance, like God is for us, God is love, God is sacrifice, God is inviting us, that we can be in that, we can have, this is what he would describe as the kingdom here on earth, that we can live our lives in that reality each day. This should shape our lives in such a way that we become so generous that we take the assurance of this blessing and pour that out on others, that we take the hope that we have rooted in that message and give hope to others. When I think of the posture of the church, I oftentimes think sometimes we're more anxious than anybody. 
that we have this tendency to clutch so hard or worry so deeply or, or try to align ourselves with powers and politics and all of these things. And like Lewis says, those things are like the lifespan of a gnat. Jesus was asked so many questions about Rome and he just simply didn't care, right? Like Rome is here and it will be gone. Instead, what he saw is the dignity, the immortality in every single person, especially the least. But each one of us are made with that sort of like purpose of shining. But that shining is a life poured out in compassion. We as Christians should live in this sense of confidence. So Paul tells us in Thessalonians, encourage each other with this reality. Encourage each other. Like death is not the end, there's more. One of my favorite stories, uh, um, Julian of Norwich has this experience of, of Jesus and she's in this place of like deep illness. And that Jesus comes before her and he holds out, you, have you heard this one, this like little chestnut and it's the world. <laughs> it's everything. It's the cosmos. And she's reminded of like, she sees how small it is and how precious it is to God. And then God says to her, all shall be well, all shall be well. And every manner of thing shall be well. And that reassurance to me is what is at the heart of what Paul is saying as we look at the world and as we're afraid or we see all the darkness that still is going on, sometimes a, a battle that feels like we're losing, Jesus speaks, all shall be well, all shall be well. Every manner of thing shall be well. The death is swallowed up in victory, that there is more on the other side, that, that this God of light and love will welcome each one of us there. And I say this to you because my hope would be you would leave today encouraged. This invitation is there for each one. This simple acceptance, this simple remember me. But then this yielding of our lives, not for our own possession, but for God's purpose. We talk about here our vision statement being to become like Christ for the sake of others. And to me, that simple message captures the full of our lives. How is the way I'm living shaping me to be more and more like Christ and always for the sake of others? Be encouraged. As Paul says, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Some questions for you, of course, as we close. When I find myself worried or anxious, fearful or afraid, what is it that I'm actually afraid of losing? How does the reality of my immortality add perspective to my fears? How does it speak into that? What a reminder as we get afraid. What a reminder as we get worried of coming elections, etc. How do we let that timeline speak into that? Is there an imbalance in my life of what I'm truly living for? Where do I see my investment in what is temporary 
getting in the way of my eternal investments of love of God and my neighbor. So often we're trying to work out some sort of compromise or relationship with God, like, I'll give you so much and then I'm holding on to this. We're reminded, like, no, we're giving our whole hearts, all of us, more and more. And how can I better live eternally today in this present moment? How can I bring God's eternal kingdom here to earth? When we live in this reality, this is what we do as we bring God's kingdom right here within our own hearts and within the sphere of our own lives. And may we as a church be those who are living into this command to bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? If anybody's sitting there and you have not opened, invited, said yes, it really is as simple as that. A laying down, a surrendering, a yielding. Remember me and God's promise. Today you'll be with me. And God, thank you for this promise and the surety of this that you give us in Christ, in the resurrection, in the promise that our lives extend beyond, beyond what we can comprehend. And we sit here with our small little minds trying to wrap ourselves around that. But God, thank you for the reality that awaits. Thank you that we can live into that today. God, help us to be a church that is shining with that light, that is a beacon of hope to those around us. God, help us to live lives of just radical generosity to this world. And we thank you. Thank you for the way that you have gone before us and take us with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.